Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. We're going to dive into a rather controversial subject in the world of medicine and medical training, and that is how we select medical students to go into their respective residency programs. And it brings up a much larger question, how do we select the right trainees to go into the right postgraduate training, to go into the right jobs, to go into the right sectors based on the way that they're assessed while they're in their training programs. And so we've got a real expert coming from actually where I went to medical school, Baylor College of Medicine in Houston, Texas. Amy Gardner is joining us. Before we get to the conversation, just want to remind everyone, please go ahead and go back to the website. Take a look at www.explorethespaceshow.com. That's where we house all of our archives for the show. That's where we have our four pillars of learning. There's tremendous material with extraordinary guests there, and I would really ask all of you to go and take a look around. All the great work that's been done is all kept there for you to come back and access whenever you would like. You can find me on Twitter, at ETS Show. I'm very active on social media. I love interacting with people who are listening to the show. Really appreciate it and enjoy getting feedback. You can also email me, mark at explorethespaceshow.com. Those are great ways to interact and to share ideas of what you'd like more of and things that we can do better. Always want to be improving. And if you have the opportunity to subscribe to the show on your favorite platform, iTunes, Google Podcasts, whatever the case may be, that would be great. We've got lots more good content coming and don't want you to miss out on anything. And if you have the opportunity to leave us a rating and a review, that's a real help to help other people find the show and to enjoy the the extraordinary conversations that we have here. So that all being said, let's get into the meat of this this one. This is a little bit of a controversial topic in the world of medicine right now. The issue is how are we selecting the right candidates? How are we picking the right medical students to go into residency programs? And Amy Gardner holds a PhD in organizational psychology, and she is working now as the assistant dean of evaluation and research at Baylor College of Medicine, which is where I went to school in Houston, Texas, in the Texas Medical Center. We came across each other on social media when this issue around the value of standardized testing for medical students in terms of how they're selected for their residency programs, for their training after medical school, blew open after some rather insensitive comments were made by people who actually administer these tests. And it brought this question into really specific relief. Are we doing the right work in how we select medical students in terms of how medical students are emphasizing standardized tests while they're in medical school? Amy has taken a somewhat different pathway, and I think it's going to be the first of many. And so we're really excited to have the opportunity to talk about this. Amy, thank you so much for coming on the show. Yeah, thanks, Mark. Thanks for having me and always making good new friends on Twitter. So That's right. That's right. So let's start from the, the little tempest in a teapot that we had on social media. But I want to make sure that we're all talking about the same page. Can you sort of define for us first... When a medical residency program, internal medicine, general surgery, pediatrics, ophthalmology, whatever the case may be, what are the criteria as we sit here today that are the major levers that have to be pulled by the candidate 
in order to look attractive to a program? Right. So uh, typically the most influential and impactful um, metric or item on um, an applicant's uh, application package to get them even considered for most graduate medical education programs here in the States is going to be that USMLE, that medical licensing exam step one uh, that students take uh, during their second, third year of training. So this is in addition to their grades that they're getting in medical school, their letters of recommendation, the rest of their application, their personal statement. The big lever right now is a standardized test. Exactly. And a lot of that is is purely out of program directors who are sorting through these piles and piles of applications um, on the receiving side, not having really any other quick way to, you know, quickly filter through these these big piles of applications. So, you know, in general surgery, uh, which is where uh, I work predominantly on, on this topic, you know, the average residency program that's seeking to fill just five spots they have at least 800 applications uh, come to them through the um, electronic, you know, residency application service uh, system. And so September 15th hits and they have 800 plus uh, applications. They have to quickly figure out a way to filter through those. And so the easiest way is to apply some filter of a cutoff related to USMLE that um, they feel comfortable with and getting that down to a more manageable number so that they can provide a more in-depth review of the rest of those applications. So as I'm listening to you, I'm experiencing the flashbacks. I am going back to when I was studying for step one and for step two. And just so we're all on the same page again, step one is taken, and you're going to have to correct me because it's been a minute. Step one is taken after the second year of medical school. At Baylor, I remember we took it after about 18 months before you start your clinical rotations, though. Mm-hmm. Step two, and that's the big one. That's the that's the big one, right? Much that's more the so than step two. Yeah. So, and so, yeah, step two isn't always even taken by the times applicants um, are applying. Yeah, and that's right. And yes, yes, trend, yes. Right. So that's a little bit of an inconsistent metric. So that's why step one is the biggest kind of predictor of whether or not candidates reach the top of that application pile or even reviewed. And so for every single medical student across the United States, they all have to take step one. It is not optional. Right. If they, they want to be licensed, yes, in, in medical world. Mm-hmm. Right. It's an old exam. It's been around for many, 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 many decades. It's a multiple choice test. The way we do it now is you go and you sit in a room, you have to get fingerprinted in, you have to get fingerprinted out. It's it's taken very, very seriously. It takes the bulk of a day and you go through a whole series of questions on all the different stuff that you have covered in the first two years of medical school. Right. It's a it's a huge, um, huge test. And, you know, students know that it is a big determinant of their yeah. future. Yeah. What the specialties they might even have a fighting chance for. And if um, they're certain on one specialty, they know that they'll have a higher likelihood of matching or, you know, again, being invited for an on-site interview if they have um, a higher score, just given the way that the current system is working right now. And so they put a lot of effort, time, money into preparing for this test, taking practice tests, taking prep courses, et cetera. So it's a big, it's a big stressor, as you might imagine. So there's a couple things that you said that I want to just pick up on. First of all, it's a huge stressor. And I think a lot of the stuff that you and I have seen on social media and that a lot of people have been very open and frank about is the real toll that preparing for this examination takes on medical students. It's extremely expensive. 
the test itself comes out of your own pocket. You have to. It's it's very expensive. It's several. I think it's. Uh, we'll have to find the exact citation. But you do you remember exactly? I know it's over a thousand dollars. Oh yeah, yeah. I don't know specifics of what it takes. I know our friend Brian Carmody, also a Twitter friend, yes. uh, has a, has a whole blog that he he knows all the data inside and out and pulls it. So and we'll route people to that because Brian does a really nice job of summarizing it. But it's expensive for you know <laughs> most medical students are using student loans to pay for the exam, and then there's a lot writing on it. Obviously, you have to take a lot of time to study for it. You're in an interesting spot. You are bridging the divide between the medical students and and the programs. So there's a tension there. The medical students want to demonstrate their aptitude. They want to show, hey, I've worked really hard. I'm a good student. I'm committed. And I want to go into specialty X because I feel compelled to do it. I feel called to do it. I'm going to go into the specialty and I'm going to excel. That's the one side. The other side of the equation is the program saying, look, we want good candidates. We want the right people to join us who are the right fit in terms of skill, motivation, cultural fit, all that sort of stuff. The, you know, the people can come to our program and soar. We've got to reconcile that tension. This exam and the work that you're doing are sort of in the middle of that. So with that as a framework, what is your perspective on how we're doing with getting the right candidates into the right programs with the right sort of mindset, not coming out of it, you know, beat up and broke? <laughs> sure. So um, with my industrial organizational psychology hat on, um, I, I look at this through a number of different um, types of lens. So uh, first and foremost is um, from just a validity framework standpoint of we're relying on a tool that was developed for the purpose of pass-fail determinations to determine if someone has adequate medical knowledge to you know, meet some of their licensing requirements. And we've kind of turned around and taken that test and tried to use it for other purposes, so for the purposes of selection. And, and then are making an even additional leap then to say, well, even though it's created for pass-fail, we're also going to assume that every incremental um, improvement in performance is linearly associated with better performance and training. And there are numerous flaws to that to that argument. And we know that you know taking a test that was created for one purpose and using it for another purpose requires a number of questions to be answered to ensure that it is indeed um, able to be used for that purpose. And people have done that and found that it falls short. Um, and even the test developers who create the USMLE, you know, they'll uh, casually, you know, say uh, here and there, by the way, we don't recommend this as used for selection. We don't recommend um, that you interpret test scores in any way other than pass-fail because that's not how the test was created. And so that's one of, you know, just the initial interpretations, I guess, of this process of, um, you're taking one thing that was created to measure one specific competency, medical knowledge, and then ex trying to extrapolate that and hope that it predicts a whole host of competencies that we care about in graduate medical education. And then sometimes we you know, get confused when it, you know, we have people who are in training programs who may not be a good fit for that culture or for medicine in, in general, or are just unhappy because um, they perhaps you know, don't have that great fit in terms of um, these other competencies that we know are important. Otherwise, I would say also is that we know that programs are different. So if you were, you know, a business 
and you wanted to create a systematic process or new selection process to identify who might be the best candidates to come into your program or your organization, you would first start with looking at your specific organization and say, well, what do we care about? And kind of essentially do some backwards engineering from there. So do, um, you know, kind of what we call a job analysis and um, interview key leaders in the program, um, trainees who've done really well and, you know, flourished and really identify, you know, what is the culture of this program? What are the unique values and expectations of this program and what is required for success? And then you would identify or create specific assessment tools that you would apply to that application selection process and see uh, how candidates perform and be able to get a better idea of that fit. Otherwise, you know, something that isn't talked about, in my opinion, again, from an I.O. Uh, perspective, enough is the implications for using this test on fairness and the diversity of candidates we, we bring in. You know, it's well established that uh, written exams have often have adverse impact towards certain demographics um, and that recreate differences in test performance that aren't matched in later job performance. And so industry tries to stay away from these types of tests for selection purposes because they know that and they don't want to get into any legal trouble. And so I think that's one of the reasons why industry has been much quicker to take up more evidence-based selection processes because they have a very real fear of quite frankly, just getting sued. And so they want to avoid litigation and make sure everything is, is very clean. So they'll ask experts who know this world um, to come and help them so that they can create the most effective, efficient, and then, you know, of course, legal um, selection system. What I'm taking away from your extraordinary description of this tension and of the problem, a couple of things, and just this is the way I'm internalizing it. And you can you can ding me if I'm doing this wrong. One of them is we are using a very blunt and outdated instrument for an outcome that it was not intended for. Right. We are using one that is riddled with potential for bias. And we are using one that can be really, really disruptive and destructive for the students who are actually doing the test taking. Exactly. I can speak to for sure the third part of that. And I think that all of my friends and colleagues who have gone through step one can speak to it as well. These are smart people. These are tough people. These are also really seasoned test takers. They've been evaluated since they were kids and they're used to excelling. The test was designed to be pass fail. And I think it's important to note it is anything but pass fail. Every question counts. Your score counts. People scrutinize and agonize over, well, if I want to go into this specialty, what are the, what is the mean score that I need to be pursuing? If I'm not there, what happens? I personally saw people come apart at the seams when they saw their score. Smart people, great people, kind, thoughtful, good physicians who are good physicians now disintegrate because their score wasn't what they hoped it would be. Tragically, there are documented episodes where people have taken their own life because of their step score, where that has been the final straw. People have left medical school completely because of step one. It's really disruptive. And we are way behind the curve in terms of being more sophisticated to get the right people into the right program at the right time. Do you sense because your level of expertise on this far exceeds most of us. 
is the needle starting to move or are we still kind of stuck in the mud? So I do think the needle is, is starting to move and people are beginning to see, wait a second, is this at odds with some of our other efforts? And so I think a lot of the push thus far has been from the UME side, from the undergraduate medical education side. I think medical students, obviously, like you said, are experiencing the stress. And, you know, I think more and more, especially as generations are, are coming up, students expect a very fair a very transparent process, and they want to understand how data is being used, how decisions are made. And um, I think with increased scrutiny of what we're doing, we're going to have to make some changes to um, fulfill those needs and desires from those that side of the stakeholders. I can also say, you know, we've talked about kind of just some of the logistics and some of the kind of shortcomings from an assessment or validity standpoint and um, from a fairness standpoint and stress for the students. You know, it's it's not a walk in the park on the program side either. Right. They're similarly, you know, having folks who are entering into their training program who get in and, you know, realize that this isn't for them. You know, maybe there are people who wanted to go in one specialty and then knocked USMLE out of the park. And then their mentors say, well, now you can consider a more competitive specialty. And so they're being coached into specialties that match with their scores rather than what matches with their passion. That is such and a great point. That is such a smart point. And then what you were saying too, when that person then leaves, that's a huge deal. You have a program where they're already stretched razor thin and someone steps away from that program, they have to figure out how to cover all of that work. It's a huge deal. I mean, it's a patient safety issue when you lose a resident. Oh, for sure. It puts stress on the rest of the team. It puts stress on the program. And it's not as if this is a world where you can then just post a post a job yeah. and someone comes up the next day, right? Right, right, right. No, I think that that's an incredibly good point that the counseling that people get, whoa, you did really well on your step score. You should go into something else instead of, yeah, your step score is fine, but what are your passions? What feels aspirational to you? What feels right to you? How do you want to spend the rest of your life? What kind of hospital do you want to be in? What kind of clinic do you want to be in? What kind of research do you want to do? That's the inventory that really should be taken. And in terms of moving the needle, you know, there's specialties in medicine that, you know, you can kind of categorize as being of the old school. And I would say that the Department of General Surgery at Baylor College of Medicine is about as old school as it gets. I mean, this is where American surgery really made its bones in a lot of ways. But I think it's important to note, this is one of the programs in the United States that's starting to be the most innovative and being the most dynamic and starting to think about this whole process in a different way. And that's some of the work that you're doing now. Yeah, so I worked um, in a general surgery department uh, right when I came out of graduate school. And I did, you know, some administrative things around assessments for the residency program and worked in the simulation lab and did a lot of research. And it was a super great time. And again, from my perspective, when I came in and I saw um, all the effort and um, resources going into selecting who the future surgeons of the world were, I was very shocked, you know, from the program side. And I thought, wow, guys, you know, we're conducting a whole lot of interviews in a very unstructured way. And we're having ranking meetings that um, we're talking about competencies or characteristics of individuals that really aren't, you know, tightly tied to success on this program. 
And then we would have trainees come in and who some of them weren't satisfied and some of them didn't finish training. And for those who did, some of the times we had troubles with, you know, having to remediate, you know, things like interpersonal skills and professionalism. And so I and some colleagues uh, started on this path a few years ago to help work with programs to equip them with the knowledge and structure and assessment solutions they need to really identify those best fit candidates for their program in a fair, equitable, and scientific manner. And so that is how um, a company called SurgeWise got started. Uh, We had to develop a whole business model around helping programs do this so that we could share information and and share knowledge. And um, since then, we've been able to work with a number of general surgery residency programs, a lot of which are in Texas. So um, stereotypes at all of (laughs) the good old Texas programs. But we are leading the way in um, trying to uh, push momentum towards doing this a little bit better. And Baylor is definitely one of those um, who's involved in this process. So we're very proud to see that. So this is where I think we can start to pull out some important pieces that can be generalized. And it's I think of my buddy Steve. He is a, an engineer who focuses on municipal water supplies. And he's in a leadership position. So he has to hire people and he has to recruit candidates and he has to get screening tools. He has a, you know, he, he has a good job and people want to be a part of the work that he does. And so he gets plenty of applicants who want to come and work with him. So let's think about this. If we're looking at general surgery in Texas, if we're looking at engineering in Colorado, if we're looking at an arts program in San Diego, For you, if you're going to step in and say, look, here are the fundamentals, here are the pieces that you must have to both make sure your candidates rise to the surface and to make sure your program gets the right people into those slots, how how would you construct that? What what are the ingredients that you're putting in that stew? Well, step number one, and this is the most important, is to really get together with your team and organization and figure out what is it that you want? What really delineates a high-performing employee or trainee in this program, in this department, versus someone who's average, versus someone who would not fit in and would not thrive in this environment? And um, when we've gone to programs and done this, sometimes this is the first time the group of key decision makers in those departments have ever sat down and just had that conversation of, wait, what are we looking for? What are we looking for? Who is the right, not just a warm body, that can just see a ton of patients in the middle of the night, but what kind of person and skill set and characteristics do we actually want inside inside this building? Exactly. So number one is get consensus on that and get consensus and input from everyone who matters. So people who are supervisors, people who are in that role now, you know, sometimes it means reviewing historical documentation of well, let's look at the people who have quit or who have left or who did not thrive. What were their characteristics and how are those different than those people who have just been rock stars? Um, So that is absolutely step number one. And that is applicable to um, every organization, every type of working environment. From there, I would imagine that's where it gets a little bit more granular. But are there pieces that can be reliably built on once a program has that in place to move, to kind of move the conveyor belt. And then what metrics would you suggest we look at? Like for you with the SurgeWise program in Texas and at Baylor College of Medicine, what metrics should we be looking at 
so that we know that as we're tweaking this, right, as we're discussing, hey, USMLE needs to be pass-fail, and we're going to do this, and we're going to do this other piece, and we're going to do this. Th- what do metrics do we need to track to make sure we're doing things that our interventions are working, that we're that we're doing the right work? So when you when you create a new selection system and essentially want to know, did this work? Was this worth it? Yeah. Uh, there are a couple of different things to look at. One is efficiency. So, you know, again, from many program standpoints right now in, in postgraduate medical education, they're spending a lot of time, a lot of resources, a lot of clinician time um, doing uh, sorting through applications, uh, conducting interview days. And obviously that's lost opportunity. I am certain, you know, your chair, your chairperson or your hospital would prefer you probably be in the clinical environment making money um, rather than sorting through all these piles. So one is efficiency. Did it take you less time to identify those candidates? Um, could you conduct less interviews? Um, is there less time spent on just the screening and selecting process? Uh, so that's one, you know, fairly easy, tallyable uh, type metric. The second, of course, would be performance. Um, so are those that uh, you have selected in using a new system, are they you know, picking up tasks uh, and learning and fulfilling all of their job duties and performing well? Or are you having to spend a lot of time you know, reinvesting in them to get them back on track? Are you having to remediate them above and beyond what you might expect for some training program? Um, so how are they doing is the second question. So that would be a comparison of, um, you know, here are the here are performance metrics, you know, pre-intervention, select new selection system, and here's how they're performing afterwards. And another metric, of course, would be fit. Um, so, you know, sometimes that's a little bit of a, uh, what people think as a soft metric, but it's so important, you know, fit drives everything. And so, you know, really talking to candidates and, and the people around them and say, you know, are they fitting well in this environment? Are they thriving? Did they have a realistic preview of what it would take to get to be uh, successful in this program? And are they meeting uh, those metrics? And then, of course, attrition. So attrition in many surgical subspecialties and, and many other specialties as well are, is quite high. And a lot of people are leaving and they're not just leaving and quitting medicine all entirely or leaving and just quitting surgery and moving into another specialty like emergency medicine and anesthesia. But a lot of them are quitting one surgery program and then going into another one, which really gets at that fit aspect as well. Um, so that would be another metric that uh, you definitely would want to pay attention to to see if your um, selection system is working. If you take a strategic view if you were to, you know, go all the way up out of Houston, Texas, and look around the United States, what's your assessment of what you just described in terms of implementation across medical training in the U.S.? How far off of that gold standard that you just laid out are we? Are we close? Are we just getting started? Are we somewhere in the middle? Uh, I would say that we're just getting started. And yeah. And one of the issues, I think, is because all of the documents that we have applicants put together. So, like you said, they're, you know, they're from their third to fourth year medical school, you know, they're putting everything related to their professional identity together at that time to, to submit as part of their portfolio. So they're putting those letters of recommendation and those personal statements. They're getting that their clerkship grades together and asking, you know, deans for letters and, uh, you know, giving their test scores over. The problem is a lot of those things in those packets aren't helpful for selection purposes. You know, when people do predictive validity studies and see, okay, do um, these letters of recommendation, do these personal statements actually impact ratings for this position later on in training and post, they're finding nothing. 
And so what we found through our SurgeWise experience is that it's not as if we need to put better metrics around the tools that we already have. It's that we have to create new tools and um, we have to kind of revamp some current processes. So we have to train faculty on how to do structured interviews rather than, you know, Know, having a quick chit chat session um, and a more informal process where they're making ratings. So I think across the nation, um, some people are trying this. I think there's definitely momentum and people are trying to innovate and create new tools. Um, we've seen all sorts of things, you know, just based on conversations of, you know, people having, you know, applicants to gen search programs, you know, do technical assessments, literally play the game of operation. Um, they'll purposely put them in stressful environments. So people know that there are other competencies. They're just having a hard time, um, I think, putting a thoughtful and evidence-based assessment system to get at those competencies. When you were discussing about the letters of recommendation and all of the things that the medical students are asked to put together, that they're not useful, I was afraid you were going to say that. But actually hearing it out loud, my head dropped. Because I remember the stress and anxiety that went into getting them all together and compiling them and hoping they were right and parsing the words and all of that sort of thing. And it, 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 it's got to be different. It's just, it's got to get better. And I think that I would tend to agree knowing what I know that we, that, that our industry is way far behind and that that work needs to get done. Are there industries that we can model ourselves after? Are there, companies, not so much companies, but are there industries that that draw people out of a graduate program, like a medical school or something else, that are really sophisticated, that do that value-added stuff of, hey, you want to enter a surgical field? Let's make sure you are you have the you have the dexterity and the aptitude to actually be in the operating room and perform surgery on another human being. Let, let's put that to the test. Let's let's stress you a little bit, knowing that you'll be stressed when you're doing this work. Not to be mean, but just to replicate what will come. Or, hey, uh, do you have the aptitude to run a huddle or to lead a meeting or to run a quality project? Those things are the things that you're going to be asked to do as a resident. We should be we should be sampling all of that. Are there are there places that we can look that can really set a gold standard? Oh, absolutely, and I mean this in a very respectful way, but. You know, there, in industry, we have hundreds of years of literature showing across all industries, you know, general general types of principles like this and that have investigated different types of assessments and different types of modalities and methodologies you can use for assessment. So some of the stuff was created, you know, as early as World War One for military to help uh, create, you know, assessments that help identify is someone going to be a good leader? Will they be good on the battlefield? Can they manage a crisis? Will they emerge as a, you know, a great, um, you know, soldier in this environment versus maybe do they need to be in some other type of role, you know, in the military system? So there are lots of industries we can learn from that um, might be less high stakes compared to medical world. So, for example, some of my friends work for consulting firms who develop screening assessments for people who are applying to be a Starbucks barista. And they'll develop pretty involved assessments where they put these applicants in situations where they have to get a lot of orders at once, where they have to work the cash register while also fulfilling orders, while also fixing a drink that was made wrong. And the idea is to immerse them in a situation, not only to, like you said, 
figure out, do they have the competencies and skills to manage that situation and thrive in terms of productivity and performance? But the idea is also to give them a little bit of a taste of, hey, if you were to join this organization, if you were to take this role, this is the type of stuff that you would be doing. Do you like that? Do you thrive in that type of scenario? Or maybe should we think about some other type of role for you? And so it's really a two-way street when you create assessments um, that help give candidates a realistic preview while also giving you important information about those competencies uh, that you want. So this is really useful. It's a, it's a great juxtaposition, and I think it's right. We're not – this is nothing about putting down being a Starbucks barista, right? It's it's a good job. I'm a, I'm a huge coffee fan. I drink a ton of it. I like to roast my own coffee. I like to make my own espresso drinks. It's hard. It's technically difficult. There's steam. It can make a mess. I've had coffee splash over me and burn my hands. <laughs> you know, you, you got to be dialed in, and I can only imagine, right, the line's 20 deep out the door at 7 o'clock in the morning. Everybody needs to get to their train or their office or whatever – you can't screw up or those customers are not going to come back. They're going to, they're going to leave and they're going to go somewhere else. So you need to be dialed in that level of structure and rigor to an assessment program. It's that's what we need to get to. And I think that that's important that we can be humble enough to say, look, we're no different. We need to get to that same standard so that we know that we have people that can enter our profession and be a match fit. What's the level of enthusiasm to get there? What's the level of enthusiasm to say, all right, we're changing USMLE to pass fail. We are going to revise our interview day. We are going to bring in really smart people like Amy Gardner to structure our process for selection and how we evaluate and test our candidates properly. What's the level of enthusiasm to do that investment? I think enthusiasm is on the same spectrum as fear. So people might be enthusiastic and it might make sense. But then there might be the fear from the program side, for example, of, well, then what are we going to do next? Yeah. You know, we're relying on this tool. If it goes past fail, what do we do? That creates more work. And so the um, solution is really to help show the efficacy of other tools, other processes. And, um, you know, some things that, quite frankly, work in business and that would appeal to um you know, businesses in terms of, listen, you can conduct less interview days. It's going to take your managers less time to sort through applications. Um, they're going to be able to, to do other other tasks that are, you know, highly valued by the organization. Sometimes that stuff doesn't quite appeal to, um, you know, program faculty who are who are in the trenches doing a lot of this work, um, which I think is, is quite interesting. And so um, we've learned that, you know, people are attracted to a better selection system for a number of different ways. Some people see it from the assessment lens. You know, they're well versed in assessment and understand, yeah, this doesn't meet criteria for um, what we should be doing. Some people are interested in it from an innovation standpoint of, you know, if our program does something different, that'll be one of the other ways that we show how innovative we are and how we're doing something different. We're pushing boundaries and from some people's perspective, you know, I think I think it just kind of makes sense. And it's more practical of, sure, we've had these pains in the past and we're willing to do whatever we can um, to do something different. Um, but I think, you know, it, it's going to take a little while, of course, to change culture, to change understanding. Um, one thing I've, I've learned in, in surgery is that um, by you know applying some of this to surgery is that uh, and I'm sure it's the same for other specialties as well as, you know, you can show data from military, from other industries, you know, and, and show, you know, these tools work, this process works, conducting structured interviews, it gets you more data. And people want to see it from their own industry. Industry, They want to see data from surgery that shows that. 
And, um, you know, we've been in situations where we'll present a surgical subspecialties and they'll say, well, that's cool that that works for general surgery, but it may not work for cardiothoracic surgery. So then we have to kind of recreate the wheel. So there's been a lot of um, recreation of, of data and processes to ensure that, you know, it, it meets expectation and aligns with other piles of research. You know, some of us are, are very motivated, I think, to to do something different and to ease the headaches on both sides of the stakeholder coin. So I'm in it for a while. Good. So, so as you're doing that, right, this is incredibly complex. And I think it's also important that we make sure that we're doing the right work in this innovation to address, to address, I think, something that's of recognized as being a gap in, in all of this. And that's making sure that we're looking at gender equity and racial equity, that we are making sure that those pieces are addressed and that that sort of that this is being done in an a, equitable manner, but also that there's enough sensitivity so that people understand, hey, here are the behaviors, here are the techniques, here are the relationships that we are going to encourage, and here are the things that we're going to say are a no-fly, and teach to that, and train to that, and educate to that. Where do those pieces fit into this whole extraordinarily complicated and, and barrier-strewn pathway? Anytime you de-emphasize reliance on tools that you know show adverse impact and instead create tools that are getting at the competencies that you value, one of the wonderful benefits and nice side effects, I guess you might say, is that you create more equitable systems. And so creating an, an even platform where all applicants can demonstrate their ability and show their stuff, I think is should be valued by, by both the program and the applicants alike. And, you know, we've done research looking at the, the composition in terms of demographics of folks who are s- selected in kind of through traditional measures, meaning, you know, program directors sort through piles of applications and apply a USMLE cutoff and do unstructured interviews. We've compared that kind of traditional system to relaxing USMLE cutoff scores and instead making a first hurdle for applicants, uh, creating something like a situational judgment test where they are you know, placed in a, a hypothetical but realistic scenario and they're given a number of responses and they have to rate the effectiveness of this of those. And it gives them kind of a realistic preview into joining that program. When we put reliance on those tools that are developed for the purpose of selection and then train faculty interviewers on what bias is and why structured interviews are important and why you need to talk about competencies and not personal characteristics and things like that, we found that you're able to bring a more diverse group of applicants through those final stages of selection. So we've been very pleased to see that. You know, I look forward to kind of working with programs and continuing to explore that. And then when we've done that, then we're going to look at socioeconomic status and show um, how, you know, these access to people who can write letters and who are influential in the field, you know, might in relying on that type of stuff and those personal statements where people have more access to maybe prep type uh, courses or resources to create and tailor a beautiful, you know, beautifully mastered personal statement. So there's lots of work to do. Um, we're just catching up. So there, there's always going to be more, more barriers and more things to tackle as we go. But that's why it makes it fun. I am so pleased as a alum of Baylor College of Medicine that you're there and that you're going to help drive my medical school that I'm proud of, that does great work, that does work that affects healthcare around the planet to get better. Because we need to get better. Uh, th- that's the reality. This needs to be better. We're not where we should be. The roadmap is pretty clear. And with really smart, motivated people like you, we're going to build it. It sounds like it's going to start in the central part of the United States and go out from there. 
<laughs> are there resources though for people who hear this and say, "Yep, this is the right work. We need to get better." There is a roadmap. It's 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 challenging, but this is the right thing to do. Are there resources for people who run programs, who run a medical group, who run a training program to reach out and start to learn from and build off of some of these ideas? Oh, absolutely. There are a number of resources I can think about. Um, you know, if you're interested in structured interviews, the AAMC actually has a really great kind of primer and resource toolkit for um, how to implement and conduct and kind of devise structured interviews. So that's just freely available on their website. Uh, if you're interested in some of the other kind of more granular things I talked about, uh, there's a whole organization, a specialty organization called SIOP. It's the Society of Industrial Organizational Psychology that gets really deep into all of these aspects and has a number of resources uh, freely available in white papers that talk about that. If anyone's interested in some of the work we've been doing and wants to follow along or see some of the things that we've published, you can go to uh, surgewise.com and, and click on that. And of course, reach out to me on Twitter. Uh, I'm, I'm right there with Mark with a, one of those active active Twitterati's, I guess. Um, so <laughs> exactly. uh, at amyg.thephd. Um, but uh, yeah, so feel free to reach out if anyone's interested in, in learning more or, or wants to kind of participate in some of the work we're doing. So we'll have links to all of those uh, in our show notes as well. And definitely follow Amy on Twitter. She's a great follow and there's lots of good stuff there. This is hard work. It's really controversial work too. And I think that we cannot overemphasize that, that this is a really fraught subject in medicine. The medical students really feel like the irons being put to them with some of these standardized tests and these processes and these biases that we know are there. The programs are really strapped with how do we change? How do we get better? It's a problem. How do we fix it? It's going to take a huge investment of time and work and effort, but we've got to do it. That's a tension point. And our, our profession is nothing if not ready to tackle those sorts of things and try to get better. So it's going to be an interesting future. I'm delighted you're going to be one of the people that helps guide it because the way you've just described this, the way the programs of the future are supposed to look, it makes sense. It sounds right. So really appreciate you taking time to, to lay out all of your expertise, your ideas, to break this down, to define the right work. Come on the show and tell us what, what we, how we can make this better. So thank you so much for doing that with us. Yeah, thanks, Mark, and thanks for the invite. I've enjoyed chatting with you today. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.